0: The problem with censorship is the censors are either sort of biased or fallible, but the harm befalls all of us because the way we as a country historically solved problems was by having open, robust, live debates, and we've moved away from that, and I, I don't think that's a good thing.
1: Hello, and welcome back to The Kevin Roberts Show. We always have a newsmaker, someone who has some really good thoughts about where to take America. And occasionally we have an elected or an appointed official. And today we have one of my newer friends in D.C., Commissioner Brendan Carr of the Federal Communications Commission. He is someone with great Texas roots. so You hear a little bit about that today. Most importantly, what you're going to hear about is the important work at the FCC, especially from the standpoint of those of us who think that government should be a little more limited. Commissioner, thanks for joining me. Well, wonderful
0: to be with you. It's always good to spend time with someone that knows what time it is in America. So great to join the podcast with you. Oh, Brendan, let's start there. What <laughs> what time is it in America? Well, it's a good question. I guess there's a lot of different ways uh, to answer. I think for me, uh, someone that's a conservative, grew up uh, with obviously sort of deep conservative roots. I think we're at a really interesting point in time where... In D.C. in particular, you had a lot of people on the conservative side that sort of fell into this sort of fundamentalist libertarian view that was basically like if a big corporation wants to do something, who are we as conservatives to stand in the way? I think the conservative movement for a long time was very focused on the, the threat to individual liberty that comes from big government, rightly so. But I think what a lot of people on sort of the fundamentalist libertarian side missed was the threat to individual liberty that comes from the consolidation and abuse of power by corporations. And so from my perspective, what time it is, it's time to stand up for individual liberty when it is under threat, both from big government and also from big corporations uh, that really are unaccountable right now. So- that's how I'd answer that question.
1: Man, you came out swinging. <laughs> we we usually, you know, following my own... Oh, you meant like literally what time it is. I'm sorry. I thought I thought it was, you know, I guess it's a, a 11 or so here local time right now. You're, you're doing great. It's, it's a compliment I was just about to say. Following my own pace, you know, being a native Southerner, I like to get warmed up, ask you how you got into what you're doing. And you are ready to roll, which I really appreciate. <laughs> it's, it's, and I know that our audience will too, because there's so much content out there. And we are going to talk about content moderation. Yeah. Let's start with the Federal Communications Commission. Yep. Even th- those of us who do policy for a living don't know everything that the FCC does. So yeah. th- even though our audience is very smart, they wouldn't necessarily have reason to know everything about the FCC. So give us the summary. Yeah, so it's
0: interesting so the FCC is obviously a pretty old agency uh that's been around for a long time. It, it has five commissioners. 3 are of the president's political party, two by statute. Uh, have to be not of the president's political party. And by custom, uh, that means that you end up with three Republicans, two Democrats, and Republican administration and the opposite right now. Right now we're two, two, uh, two Democrats, two Republicans, because the third Democrat is still going through the confirmation process. But we have a number of things that we work on Historically, we were very active in the media space, so radio ownership regulations, how many stations can someone own? Um, We're very active right now in 5G, this next generation wireless technology. We have to get the airwaves, the spectrum out there that can um, enable those 5G use cases to flourish. If you have a merger of any entity with an FCC license, so TV stations or wireless operator, we have to review that merger and approve it or not approve it. We also administer something called the Universal Service Fund, which is a $9 billion a year fund uh, that consumers, they don't know it, but they pay into it on a, essentially what feels like a tax, we call it an assessment legally. So I got to be careful with that disclaimer, an assessment uh, on their monthly telephone bill. And we administer that funding. And that pays for rural internet bills, telehealth, connects, you know, schools uh, to the internet, healthcare facilities as well. Um, So there's a lot the FCC does, radio, media, wireless. Um, It's an interesting space, you know, the older the technology, Interestingly enough, the more heavily we regulate it and the newer technology tends to get a, a, a lighter touch. And I think we gotta to try to find a better balance there. Well,
1: I was just about to say, and thank you for that excellent summary. I learned some things uh, in that summary. I learned some things every time I talk to you. So for people in the audience watching watching or listening, this is an episode where you will learn a lot, but we're we're also going to, to mix it up. By that I mean the FCC is very involved in a lot of aspects of American life. For those of us right of center, that may displease us in certain in certain policies. Or in in other aspects of life, it may please us that the FCC has that authority, and it goes back to the point you just made, which is striking a balance in the amount of regulation between the older technologies and the new. And this really, although you're very capable of doing this, I'm not, this won't be an episode where we really get into the technicalities of things, although I'm sure some members of our audience would appreciate this. It really is, I think, going to be a conversation, as organic as it will be, that talks about how government power can and ought not be used to make sure that humans flourish in the United yeah. States. So let's start there. What's the biggest challenge of the, at the FCC right now, based on what I just said, that is finding this balance in the, yeah. r- with the right amount of regulation?
0: There's a, a lot of different topic areas that fall into that. One that's sort of interesting is there's a lot of debate right now about Section 230. And a lot of people talk about Section 230 as being Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act. But in reality, Section 230 is actually in the Communications Act, which the FCC administers. So I have long taken the position that the FCC needs to step in and issue some sort of rulemaking or declaratory ruling that interprets Section 230 and brings it back to the original meaning that Congress intended. Uh, my view, and it's echoed by others, um, including Justice Thomas, has said that over the years since Congress passed Section 230 in the 1990s, uh, courts have added uh, immunities uh, into the statute that are found nowhere in the text of the statute. And so I think 230, content moderation, is an interesting example of the balance that you're, that you're talking about, which is um, – as, as a conservative, I do think that there is a role for the government to play with respect to content moderation, but it's a balance. We should be pro-speech. We should be adopting reforms that result in less censorship. We shouldn't be picking and choosing which speech gets to be uh, articulated and not. But that's one where I think we need to step in with some sort of common sense pro-speech regulatory
1: guardrails. What do you say to people, and I know they're they're well-intentioned when they say this, I, I presume, they're conservatives, perhaps even more so libertarians, that when it comes to content moderation, those are private companies. They have 100% right to do whatever they do.
0: Yeah. It's an interesting argument, but it, it's, it's simply not correct. So We have a lot of cases where obviously you start as a conservative with the idea that you know, it's private property. If you don't want a person on your property, you can eject them. Uh, and there's a, a thread of cases in the speech context as well that says you don't have to carry someone else's speech if you don't want to. But it's not an absolute rule. Uh, we have all sorts of cases where the Supreme Court and appellate courts have said, no, we are going to regulate and limit your ability to refuse to carry speech. Uh, and we do it in a lot of contexts. So the FCC, for instance, Cable is an example. In the 1990s, um, Congress looked at the emergence of cable and decided that it was vital to be on cable, uh, particularly for broadcast TV stations. It was the the main medium of the day. And so Congress stepped in, passed a law um, which limited the ability of cable companies to pick and choose what cable companies to carry. Um, in other words, private uh, entity, cable company, could not choose and have carte blanche to refuse to carry particular broadcast stations. That went up to the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court affirmed that that law survived uh, First Amendment scrutiny. And we see that in a range of other cases as well. Rumsfeld, a case having to do with uh, military recruiters on college campuses. Again, you would start with that idea traditionally that, well, a college gets to reject someone from being on campus. Court said no. Uh, we see it in a range of other cases. There are certainly cases on the other extreme of the spectrum We talk about um, newspaper cases like Miami Herald. And of course, in the context of a newspaper where you're engaged in very uh, direct editorial control, that's a case where the Supreme Court has said, no, you don't get to interfere with that and tell a newspaper what stories to run or not. But again, I think you have to look at the medium and the features of the medium. If you're holding yourself out as, in the main, a conduit for other people's speech, I think that's an area where we have greater ability under the First Amendment to regulate. That's what the case law shows. But look, if you're sort of a small website, um, you have a clearly defined editorial point of view, then yeah, I don't think that that's something the government can regulate. It's a similar like... If you have a a bakery that's you know making a cake, it's a single bakery, an uh, artistic expression. I don't think the government can come in and control your sort of expression of artistic ability. But again, if you are a nationwide conduit for other people's speech, it's a, it's a different thing altogether. So I think you have to think about these cases on a spectrum. Yes, there are certainly cases where the government should not interfere with a private entity's right to reject speech, but depending on the characteristics of the circumstance, then I think that there's plenty of precedent to do it and we should do it because free speech over the digital town square uh, is so fundamental today and
1: I mean it, it it seems as if it's a very similar situation to a, a a TV station needing to be on cable the the example you mentioned earlier and it's not exactly the same as a newspaper right. as, as you alluded to but most Americans would say they need access if they so desire to social media platforms
0: yeah I think Fundamentally, too, there's a cultural issue here, which is if you go back to the 1970s, it was a very uh, fundamental uh, component of progressive thought was diversity of viewpoints. In fact, I like to tell the story that the modern day op ed actually launched in 1970s, early 1970s in the New York Times. And it did so because there was an editor of the New York Times, then a guy by the name of John Oakes, who said, diversity of opinion is the lifeblood of democracy. The moment we insist that everybody think the same way we do, our democratic way of life is in jeopardy. He was someone that looked at the editors of the New York Times and said, I want in my paper views that are divergent, his language, from them. That's how the op-ed page launched the New York Times and was copied, obviously, throughout the world. Now, flash forward to Today and not that long ago, a United States Senator ran an op-ed in the New York Times, and the editors didn't like it. It diverged from their views and people got fired over it. So it's it's really so interesting to think about over a relatively short period of time uh, from a political philosophy perspective. The New York Times went from we want divergent opinions that differ from our editors in our in our op-ed pages to we do not want op-eds that are running that are divergent from our own. And so I think. That's a cultural challenge in this country is to get back to this embrace of diversity of views because it's how we solve difficult problems. We should have a robust, open debate about, for instance, mask efficacy. Do cloth masks work or the, or, they, or or don't they? The origins of COVID, um, the uh, effectiveness of vaccines in terms of trans- transmitting or not. Not that vaccines aren't good, they are, but let's have a debate about what they actually do and don't. These are core public health uh public policy issues that for much of the place that these debates take place, the internet, you weren't even allowed to have them. So the problem with censorship is the censors are either sort of biased or fallible, but the harm befalls all of us because the way we as a country historically solved problems was by having open, robust, live debates. And we've moved away from that. I, I don't think that's a good thing.
1: It isn't a good thing, and I just think about this historically that – and not to go too historian on you here, but you think about that wonderful tradition of in this far-flung, that is very large, geographical space, this republic, imperfect, but the best in the history of the world, you and I agree, to colonial Massachusetts, the the, the example of, of – town halls, something that would be more of a pure democracy as we saw in Athens. There's that tradition, the tradition of the House of Burgesses in Virginia where elected representatives are having those robust debates. The point is that those are are aspects of the public square that now in the 21st century are more digital. In fact, we would probably argue even mostly digital. And therefore, I mean, just from a common sense standpoint, you're the attorney, I'm not. From a common sense standpoint, I think most Americans look at that, they put partisanship off to the side and just say, should Americans within reason have access to these platforms to say their piece? And the answer is resoundingly yes. I'm curious what the conversations have been like in your FCC meetings, which is also a question about, to the extent you can talk about it, what daily life is like as an FCC commissioner?
0: Yeah, well, it's interesting. you know, again, there's there's four of us right now, two Republicans, two Democrats, uh, and we're all getting along very well. We are compromising. We're moving but- to the middle we're functioning the way the American public would probably expect an administrative agency to function. Uh, that hasn't always been the rule, unfortunately. Uh, obviously, I think you know Congress isn't operating that way right now in terms of moving to the middle, um, but that's where the incentive structure is at the agency, and we're getting along really, really well. But yeah, these are core, you know, fundamental, difficult issues. I pushed for years for the FCC to move forward with a Section 230 uh, rulemaking or decadent ruling. We haven't gotten there, but you're right. I think there's a couple of core things we have to do. One, is transparency. Uh, Social media is a complete black box today. Why do you gain followers? Why do you lose followers? People have no idea. Why does certain content stay up? Why does other come down? There's just no transparency. The second is accountability, which is say there's really no way of challenging a takedown or other decision by a social media company. Again, it's just, it's a total black box. We need some sort of reasonable process for accountability. I think a third thing that we need is user empowerment. If you go back to Section 230, one of the things that Congress talked about in that now old statute was that we wanted to strike effectively a balance, which means we want to give websites the incentives to give people the tools to make their own content moderation decisions. We've totally moved away from that. Right now, all these content moderation decisions are being made basically by people in Silicon Valley. So I think we need user empowerment, which is to say... If you want MSNBC to filter your feed before you see it, fine. Like plug that in and do it. If you want Fox News to filter it for you, fine. I'm not saying this isn't like a, uh, that Sandra Bullock movie where you, you know have to have your eyes like you know, manually opened and you're forced to see other people's speech. I'm not saying that. But the speech should be allowed to exist. And if someone wants to see it, they can. And I think the last thing that we really need is core anti-discrimination provisions. There's a lot of debate uh, to some extent on the the conservative right about, do we need to take big tech and and make it uh, a utility or apply common carriage rules to it? And to me, what I think is that's sort of beside the debate. The real thing is uh, common carriage, uh, utility regulation, those are examples of where we've applied non-discrimination rules in particular contexts. And so I don't really quibble with those definitions too much other than to say, we should just take those core non-discrimination rules and apply them to to big tech. And we see that uh, with Texas. So the Texas social media law prohibits discrimination based on viewpoint. And the Fifth Circuit, in a, in a very lengthy, uh, I thought well-reasoned opinion, upheld that against a First Amendment challenge. So I think that's the path forward. We need transparency, accountability, user empowerment, and some sort of core non-discrimination provision. And I think that is going to be central for diversity of thought, for dissenting religious views, dissenting political views, dissenting scientific views to be
1: aired, which at the end of the day is going to benefit all of us. Before moving on to some related but, but separate questions, I want to take a, a concrete example of something you mentioned earlier and apply the potential reform that you mentioned with Section 230 and, and have you summarize what that would look like. And it's something that troubles me deeply, and that is the inability to get a – just as, a, as an objective analyst – full view of the effectiveness of COVID vaccines. And I mean that as someone who just wants to know, I'm not in either camp. And just last week, as I understand it, there were some reputable studies advocated by seemingly reputable doctors that suggest there were downsides or, or, or bad consequences unintended of a couple of the vaccines. And we can't even have that conversation because of how the social media platforms are regulating the content. So let's just posit that's an issue because it's preventing a conversation in the digital public square. If we have Section 230 reform in the way that you would advocate for it, would it fix that?
0: Yeah, absolutely. I think so. You know, the idea that you could not censor that type of speech is sort of core to this non-discrimination provision. Again if someone doesn't want to hear that they say look i've made my mind up i don't want to hear a different view that's an insane view and someone could say it's a dangerous view okay don't follow that person and that's person. fine to say that yeah yeah block that person don't follow it you can quote tweet them and say this person's an idiot you know you can do all of that but again it's this idea that um, speech even speech we don't like should be allowed to exist and if your idea is better than that idea then it will prevail in the marketplace of ideas but that's the solution so yeah i think that all this speech should be allowed to exist. Now, of course, we can do this in a way that does not promote or even force someone to carry terrorist speech. Uh, we have rules in place at the FCC even today on you know profanity. So there's all that sort of what I call sort of edge cases that can continue to be dealt with. And that's sort of the boogeyman that people say. They say, well, if you have non-discrimination, then terrorist speech is going to flourish. And I say, no, 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 yeah. we can deal with that. We can deal with those, those types of uh, terrorist speech, profanity, Uh, child pornography, all of that we can deal with. Um, But it's non-discrimination for sort of core political views, divergent scientific views that we need to be protecting. Look, it's not just social media. It goes up the, what we call up the stack from an internet perspective to digital payment systems. You know, recently PayPal uh, came out with a policy that said they could fine people $2,500 for what PayPal and its sole wisdom uh, determined to be misinformation. And then of course, PayPal came out, A couple days later, as their stock price started to plummet uh, and said, well, it was an error. And I got to say, you know, look, I got to give them the benefit of the doubt. I mean, who among us has not fat fingered a new seven page policy threatening to take people's money for spreading misinformation? And so I think that goes to show that, yeah, social media has been front and center in the debate recently, but we need to go up the stack um, and apply these core non-discrimination requirements.
1: Let's talk about TikTok. Something that concerns you at the FCC. We have deep concerns at at Heritage with TikTok, have nothing to do with it, Uh, largely. So we're not cross-posting this on TikTok, you're saying? That's correct. (laughs) Two two concerns (laughs) there. As a uh, movement conservative organization, we have concerns about what it does to young people, especially young girls. But secondly, obviously, the control by the Chinese Communist Party is something that we just find abhorrent from from your standpoint of the FCC. I know TikTok's come across the transom, perhaps for other reasons, but I know that some of our audience will be curious to know your views. Well, it's a wildly,
0: wildly popular application, that is true. including with young people. And a lot of people look at it and they say, well, what's the big deal? It's just a uh, a platform for sharing funny dance videos and memes. They look at me and they say, well, you know, I'm some sort of modern day uh, character from Footloose that just doesn't like people <laughs> dancing. And I say, No. The whole dancing memes and all that, that is simply the sheep's clothing. And underneath the application operates as a highly sophisticated surveillance tool. It is pulling all sorts of information from your phone, from search and browsing history, keystroke rhythms and patterns. It says that it can uh, collect your biometrics, including face prints and voice prints. And for years, TikTok was asked point blank Is this data going back to China? And they gave a series of evasive answers, in some cases in interviews, saying the data doesn't even exist inside China. And this past summer, there was this BuzzFeed uh, news article that, you know, demonstrated that all those representations were nothing other than gaslighting. And the BuzzFeed news story got internal uh, communications from TikTok that said, you know, the main reveal was everything is seen inside China. Um, And that was deeply concerning for that admission and that concession to finally come forward. In fact, just a couple weeks ago, uh, a TikTok official was testifying in the Senate, and they were asked by a senator, do you share this uh, private sensitive information on US users with the government of China? And they said, no. Okay, that's a good answer. And they said, do you share it with the CCP? And they said, no. Like, okay, this is, this is trending in a good direction. And then they were asked, do you share it directly with members of the CCP? And they said, we don't want to answer that question, <laughs> which I think calls into question uh, the first two answers. And to your point, I think there's three core issues with TikTok. One is all of this data, apparently all of it, being accessed from inside China by CCP members. And that is leaves us exposed to espionage, blackmail, all sorts of nefarious purposes. Two, to the other point you made It's the content coming back into us, what is being displayed to American users through these Beijing-based algorithms. And you talked about uh, the issues with harm to young girls and otherwise from the type of content that's being displayed there. That's a big issue. The third has to do with artificial intelligence or AI. So AI has a very big potential to be used for good in many ways, but in Beijing's case, uh, used for bad, for surveillance, for Um, A potential digital weapon of war. And when we're sending all of this data back to Beijing, what we're really doing is we are feeding and training and improving their AI, which down the road could be used against us. And look, we don't allow the funding of authoritarian states with actual money. We don't allow the sending of actual missiles, kinetic munitions to authoritarian states. Why are we sending back the data that is training the AI machines. And so those are the three core problems. And we've got to do something about it. I think the Biden administration, in a lot of ways, has actually been pretty tough on China, which is a good thing. But this is one where they've been slow. They've been reviewing this for over a year now. Um, and we've got to take some final action that's going to protect and secure our interests across all those vectors we talked about uh, from the threat posed by TikTok, which is ultimately beholden to the CCP.
1: You're, thanks for that. that. Yeah. Explanation. Yeah,
0: not that I have a lot to say about it. So I don't mean to, <laughs> there's you know, more filibuster. Yeah, no,
1: it was it, it was really good. It, really grateful for it. Your realm is not the political realm. I want to be really clear. Nor is it really mine. But you and I both understand, just as citizens of this republic, that one of the the most important factors in seeing policy change is the expression of popular will. And so I get asked the question as I travel the country. Kevin, how do we, as a as a people, put Democrat and Republican off to the side, confront the CCP? It seems one really good start would be that if anyone's watching or listening this, they and anyone in their homes just delete, stop using TikTok. Yeah, this isn't just a Washington solution.
0: Yeah, I think that's exactly right. I mean, obviously, fundamentally, you know, parents uh, have a significant role to play in terms of what their kids are doing on the internet, including uh, with TikTok. But yeah, I, I do think you know we have a role, obviously, at the government level as well to take action. I think you know. <laughs> Fundamentally, we I think are, are, are at a pivot point with our relationship with communist China. Um, we have lots of U.S.-based corporations, whether it's Apple or Microsoft or others, that are deeply, deeply embedded with China from supply chain, from joint ventures on AI in some cases. Uh, at the same time, a lot of these corporations have these you know domestic ESG policies, um, and it's interesting to me. I mean, if we're gonna have anything that is an ESG policy, it seems to me doing business and being in bed from a business perspective with regime that our state department says is genocidal, that should be a negative point for you from an ESG sort of point of view. And I just think this idea that we are going to continue to do business as usual with communist China while they're engaged in genocide, while they are attempting to dominate Asia, if not beyond that, um, is something that we have to reckon with. I think corporations need to start coming up with their game plan to take an off-ramp from their deep ties inside communist China. Um, I just think that's where we have to end up here.
1: And at the same time that individuals and hopefully more companies are doing that, I would speculate that starting in 2023, we'll see more policy movement here in Washington DC and certainly in state capitals. Certainly heritage has anything to do with it. But given that you're here and China figures large in another area of your expertise, which is the infrastructure of this technology. Talk us to us about that, not just about the China side, but also what's going on with America's communications infrastructure.
0: Yeah, so it's interesting. You know, A couple of years ago, we started focusing on this issue of Huawei and ZTE gear being deeply embedded in our network. And at first, it was difficult to persuade people – about the actual risks and, and they're very real. I was up in um, a small town, Great Falls, Montana, a hundred or so miles from the, the border with Canada. And there's a, um, a military base up there, Maelstrom Air Force Base. Uh, Colonel Jennifer Reeves uh, runs the place as best I could tell at least. And in her stead are crews that literally have their finger ready to go on hundreds of ICBM missile silos. And these are missile silos spread out across hundreds of miles up there. There's nothing up there. It's nothing but wheat fields and big sky country, except one thing. There's cell sites up there running high-powered Huawei gear, the type of gear that's not really necessary to provide cell phone service to the cattle that are roaming around up there. Um, And so we started taking action. We looked at other sort of issues with data flows with Huawei ZTE. We took action there. Um, But we also continue to take action. Axios recently reported that we're, at the FCC, potentially going to vote on no longer approving for use in the US Huawei and ZTE gear. Because again, if you look at any electronic device you have... Uh, on the back of it, there's usually an FCC seal. It can't be used in this country without an FCC seal. And we're potentially going to look at national security issues from that perspective. So the last couple of years, what we did with Huawei and ZTE was we denied them funding, that universal service fund we talked about earlier. And now we're looking to go a step beyond that and actually de- deny equipment authorization. So I think you know we're moving on Huawei, ZTE. There's other carriers that want to connect to our network, China Mobile, China Telecom. We've either denied or revoked their authorization. So we're moving pretty systematically at the FCC to address these threats. There's more we can do. One idea I've thrown out there is we should publicly provide a list of every entity with any sort of FCC license or authorization that has sufficient ties to the CCP. And we should publish that because it's probably a single page document, maybe I'm just guessing, but it's probably five or six pages at this point. Uh, I think it'd be important to get that out there both so people can give us information about these companies that they haven't, but also that China understands as it goes to try to bully uh, other nations, goes to potentially make moves on Taiwan that they know that there's a risk that comes from them doing that. There will be economic consequences
1: related to that is a is a topic i've I've really been wanting to talk to you about because in in the last Texas legislative session where I was leading the Texas Public Policy Foundation, rural broadband came up. And it's a fascinating topic, not just in terms of the technology, which I know you could speak to, but for me, even more so as as a conservative. That is to say, I think it's generally a good thing when we have people moving out of cities, not that we want cities to be abandoned and become sources of blight as, as the radical left has allowed them to become, but because I think community and the way we understand conservatism is a lot healthier when people are dispersed. It So there is all of that to say there is this debate within conservatism, and it goes back to the very first thing you said in this episode, Brendan, about the tension between more libertarians and more conservative types about government power, gov- our public funds. Do we need to use public funds to expand rural broadband to potentially expand a good, which is more people living and working in rural areas? Or is that an investment that never really pays off? It's a good question.
0: It is a very live debate. I mean, look, there are vast, vast portions of this country that but for federal government subsidies would never see high-speed internet. Now, to some extent, the debate is taken out of my hand by the Communications Act, which says you have to make sure that everyone in the country has access to the service. So, my job with respect to that is more to administer it than to engage in the debate. But there is a debate. And if I were unshackled from the Communications Act mandate, uh, I, I would say, yeah, we need to be spending uh, these federal dollars because it's it's it results in greater economic opportunity. It allows people to um, teach their kids from home. Um, it allows access to telehealth, so it's a, it's in a cost, net net, we're sort of saving money on healthcare and other ways um, by having these connections. But there's ways we can do it efficiently and, and, and inefficiently. And right now the Biden administration, um, through their Infrastructure Act, freed up about $60 billion for rural internet bills, and this is on top of the $9 billion that we spend every single year on the Universal Service Fund. And there's cost-effective ways you can do that. For instance, there's this new generation of low-Earth orbit satellites. Uh, Elon Musk's Starlink is one of them. We actually awarded uh, Elon Musk about $800 million in a previous FCC auction of funds to bridge the digital divide for many, many thousands of people in rural communities. This FCC, a couple months ago or a month ago, just reversed that, uh, revoked that award of $800 million to Elon Musk's Starlink. And if those people are ever going to get service again, it's going to be through the Biden Infrastructure Act, which is going to cost many multiples of $800 million to get them served. So there's a way that we can do this that is um, cost effective for the federal government, which is to be agnostic as to the technology, or we can do it the way that it looks like the Biden administration is going, um, which is
1: spending more money than necessary to bridge the digital divide. So looking ahead, to the extent you can talk about it, get into 2023, potential agenda for the FCC, but for America more broadly regarding communications and some of the policies we talked about. What are issues, one or two, that people listening might need to pay attention to and how might they continue to learn more about it?
0: Well, in terms of an affirmative agenda, I think we need to be pursuing something that looks like what I call a connectivity agenda, which is we freed up a ton of airwaves during the last administration that helped power all the progress we saw on 5G. And frankly, we're starting to hit stall speed on that. This administration is not leaning in on 5G. You don't hear them talking about it as much as the last administration. Therefore, we're not freeing up the airwaves the way that we used to be. So we need to get going on that. On the infrastructure side, again, we've spent all this money, but there's nothing that we've done to accelerate the permitting process and the approvals that you need to actually build the infrastructure. If you're just spending money without... Streamline the infrastructure rules themselves, and you're just jumping on the gas and the brakes at the same time. You're not making that much progress. So we need to continue to get going on permitting reform to accelerate that. Obviously, I think there's more we need to do on the China front, the national security front. Um, so those are issues that we need to be focused on. And frankly, there continue to be calls for the FCC to sort of step in and you know censor conservative outlets or put a thumb on the scale um. So, that cable operators won't carry, you know, Fox News or other outlets. And I've been pretty active on that issue when someone speaks up and and push back. I mean, look, I don't care if you're uh, a left leaning MSNBC or or a, a someone of a totally different political persuasion. Uh, the federal government shouldn't be jawboning these companies into censoring and dropping that speech. We need to play a little bit of of defense there. But there's a lot a lot of
1: interesting stuff going on right now. Last question. I know that you're an optimistic guy, so I have a pretty good idea how you're going to answer this, but you're you're dealing with some pretty heavy issues that affect really every aspect of American life. So I think probably there will be times that it's challenging. But why did you wake up this morning in spite of knowing those challenges, knowing those challenges, knowing what time it is in America, which is to say the clock's ticking and still be optimistic about the American future?
0: Well, why I woke up this morning uh, at six o'clock because my three-year-old was yelling. That's it's a good reason. Basically, my alarm clock every day is my three-year-old. Whenever he's up, then 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 we're all up at that point. Uh, but I I love what I do. I love participating in the public debate. I love being a part of a movement that's recognizing that we have to look out for individual liberty. Um, that threat comes from more than just big government. Yeah, big government is the only one that can actually put you in jail. Uh, and so we we cannot lose sight of the threats that come from big government, but the answer isn't no government and to let a corporation run roughshod over individual liberty. And so to me, um, that's really where I feel like I've got a voice I need to speak up is to say we can have balanced common sense regulation that can promote what we call the FCC, the public interest. Maybe other people call it common good, uh, but there's room there to protect individual liberty from government and abuse of corporate power alike. Uh, and that's what I want to sort of keep working on.
1: So in spite of everything people read and hear and consume, there's a reason to be hopeful.
0: Exactly right. Exactly right.
1: Well, FCC Commissioner Brendan Carr, my friend, thanks for taking the time. Really enjoyed it. Thanks. You bet. Thanks for your service. Thanks. I hope you enjoyed this episode of The Kevin Roberts Show. If you did and you haven't yet given us a rating, please go to the five stars. That's the only kind of star we like, the five stars. This is the little bit of socialism that we engage in at The Kevin Roberts Show. All kidding aside, thanks for tuning in. Stay tuned to the next episode when we will also be talking about an optimistic American future. Take care. The Kevin Roberts Show is brought to you by more than half a million members of the Heritage Foundation. The executive producer is Crystal Kate Bonham. The producer is Phil Reynolds. Sound designed by Lauren Evans, Mark Guiney, and Tim Kennedy. For more information and to subscribe, please visit heritage.org.